Well, welcome to uh, what's a, an experiment in a way, um, but, but it's, it's an experiment with a real, real point to it, a real goal to it. We've got two talks tonight. Uh, they're, they're slightly shorter than normal, uh, but they're both substantial in content. The two talks are looking at pretty well the same mystery. And that mystery is the divine capacities of the human being. And the divine capacities of the human being is obviously a theme that we've been pursuing at Gospel Conversations for a long time. It's a theme that puts us close to God, uh, makes the... um, unique and extraordinary claim of Genesis about being made in the image of God uh, makes it more real and more tangible as we try and peel back the layers of experience and reality to expose um, the faculties, the spirit, the experience of being human as being very, very close to God. And very, very close to God Uh, not just in powers, but in function. Uh, In other words, God has endowed us with these enormous powers of sub-creation in order to continue his work of creation, which, which, which of course means that we must know God and be be cognizant increasingly of his will and of his character. This is not some speculative experimental exercise by the divinity. This is a hugely moral purpose um, to have uh, the created order house um, the, 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 the character, the purposes, the, the joys of the Godhead. Now, the two angles we're taking on this are art and science. And we're, first of all, going to pursue the angle through art, and in particular, the poetry of Coleridge. And that's what Sarah is going to talk with us about. Uh, Coleridge was, of course, uh, the great uh, poet of the Romantic era, um, which puts him very early 19th century. Um, He was more than a poet, he was a philosopher. And he wrote extensively about uh, the imagination and creativity and art. Um, But he was more than a philosopher. He was a theologian. His whole worldview was structured by his love of God and his apprehension of God. Um, Sarah's going to take one of his poems, uh, Frost at Midnight, which is an extraordinary um, metaphorical and dramatic um, inquiry into the human power to crystallise reality. And it's, 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 it's an awesome poem because it really is capturing in metaphorical terms, primarily, well, through, 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 the, imi- through the imagery of, uh, of crystals in a way, the capacity of our mind to dance with reality such that between our mind and reality, we forge possibility, we forge... Um, realities, uh, we forge perceptions. And and what Sarah will talk about in her talk is that 
Coleridge is not just talking about a um, specific specialised aspect of the mind, um, i.e. the ability to create new things. She is talking about perception. Now, um, and I make the point, I, I make the point during uh, the talk or after the talk that uh, it's very arguable that the impact of Coleridge and others was extremely helpful to Wilberforce uh, and his his social reforms. Um, that's a bigger topic than we can talk about tonight. But you could listen to what Sarah's talking about and you could say, well, yes, you've that's okay for art and poetry. I, I can well imagine a poet. Um, I, I can well imagine an artist... Um, celebrating the human capacity to create works of art and that's wonderful and that's important and so on but surely nature is fixed surely we are living in a brick cage called matter and we can't change that um, we are our imagination you know is is immaterial um, it 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 can't adjust the building blocks of the universe. We're victims of that, surely, surely. Surely our influence and surely our rule cannot extend to the material objects of external reality. Well, that's what Ron will then take up in his second talk on Copenhagen, the, uh, the Copenhagen school or the Copenhagen theory of the new physics. Uh, and the Copenhagen theory of the new physics actually says, well, no, it's looking in a very spooky way like the answer to these questions is yes, we, we, we can and do structure reality. That in fact human perception, now the word Ron will use is not perception, that's the word Sarah's going to use, but Ron will continue to use another word. He'll call it measurement. Same thing. When we human beings look at something, it appears that matter arranges itself for our viewing. And, and in particular, that matter solidifies and becomes matter at the point we look at it. What matter really is, is not um, substantial at all. It's, it's a mystery that would defy our powers of description. But it presents itself to us as solid, uh, almost for our purposes. And so this uh, pretty hard, obviously, to get your, get your mind around, but Ron does a wonderful job explaining it. Interestingly, the journey historically um, that Coleridge culminated and that the Copenhagen School culminated is a very, very similar journey philosophically. Um, uh, Coleridge was um, really reacting against the Enlightenment um, and the journey that Ron will chart from the Enlightenment to Copenhagen um, is, is a similar journey. The theme is the same. The theme is the same. And the theme could be, is crystallised in, in, our, in our topic, which it's mind over matter. It's how the human being in our perceptive qualities closes the loop on creation. And it appears creation is there for us. So enjoy these talks. Uh, you'll probably have to listen to them both twice. Um, the, uh, the slides accompanying both of them will be on the Gospel Conversation website. 
God bless you and uh, God bless our wonderful Lord for creating um, such a playpen for us to exalt in and to glorify him in. Not biased on either account, Dad. <laughs> Coleridge or me. Coleridge or you. Two of my favourite people. Um, <laughs> yeah, my my, I guess my meditations of the last year or more have been uh, along the lines of that we are we human beings are far closer to God and being God with His faculties than we dare to think, we dare to imagine. One of the impacts of the so-called fall is we're sort of our mind is darkened to the glory of um, what it means to be a human being. And of course, we've talked about in this forum before how unfortunate it is that, in a sense, the traditional evangelical gospel with its emphasis on sin has not had a balancing emphasis on the glory of what it is to be a human being, which we on the Church Fathers had a far fuller sense of, and I think to understand the Incarnation we need to understand these things. Um, it's, uh, so it's quite breathtaking, and um, I think, I often think of what Einstein said, the amazing thing is not the universe, but that we're watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so in order to kind of unpack this uh, really uh, divine faculty we seem, we seem to have that I think, as I said, I think the kind of fall has benighted us to. Uh, we're going to take two approaches tonight and they're, uh, they're very complementary but very different. So Sarah's going to give us Coleridge, uh, the, great, the great philosopher of the imagination. Um, and... Um, one of the things Sarah said to me that she's not going to uh, amplify tonight, but she believes that a lot of Wilberforce's reforms, which we know about, were only possible because of the Romantic era, which created this sense of human liberty. So it had this kind of social impact as well. <coughs> Sarah's going to take us on, on a journey through uh, Coleridge, and then we'll take a break for a couple of minutes. And uh, we're going to then flick through to uh, the... Uh, mind-boggling paradigms of the new physics. You can sort of listen to what Sarah's going to say in Coleridge. So that's fine. (laughs) That's art. We human beings can create art. Can human beings actually create reality uh, where the new physics is getting far closer than that than we would uh, dare imagine? So with those uh, opening Mm. words, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, I've been listening to Ron for a long time now, probably started as a teenage girl, and the first time that I heard him talk about the new physics, I had had Coleridge in the back of my mind, and the longer I've spent with Coleridge, um, the louder Ron's words have um, echoed in my mind. So tonight is a, this is all news to Ron, <laughs> but um, I, tonight is ambitious, but I think you'll, you'll be able to see at the end why the two spoke to me why Ron's thoughts about the new physics speak 
so clearly all one to the other with Coleridge. And I've chosen Frost at Midnight because um, it's my favourite of Coleridge's poems. Um, and partly because I'm so tired and partly because I'm my dad's daughter, I'm just going to shift into like English mode for a bit there and take you through what I think is one of the most extraordinary poems ever written. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, what's behind me here. This is, I mean, it, these are words, I suppose, that are, are deep in the Western imagination, even if you've not read them. Um, they, they would resonate with you, I think. Um, and what I said to my uh, extension class the other day, I said, I, I had put this up earlier in the year and they didn't, weren't quite listening, I suppose, because of this word imagination. And I think what happens when we put that word up is we just import our... Um, contemporary understanding of what the word imagination means. And I said, I don't think Coleridge means thinking up new stuff. I actually don't think that's what Coleridge means. And so what I've done is I've chosen a particular section. Um, what I think he means, if we read this closely, is actually human perception. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the human mind. Um, so I just wanted to talk about that and talk about how that sits with where Coleridge was um, in the Romantic era. So he's, this is from the Biographia Literaria, and I'm just going to read it and then just briefly point out a few things before I move into the poem. It makes so much more sense when you've got this behind you. So um, Coleridge says, by the way, this was, he wrote this to defend his friend Wordsworth, to, um, to explain to the world why his friend Wordsworth was the greatest poet ever living. <laughs> but but we have this as a byproduct. He said, the imagination then I consider as primary or secondary. The primary imagination, this is almost like biblical, this language, right? The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. And that human perception is to me what the theme of tonight is. Human perception, who we are, what we are as human beings. And as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. And he is drawing there from the burning bush. The secondary imagination I consider as an echo of the former coexistent with, with the conscious will, yet still as identical with the primary in the kind of agency and differing only in degree and in the mode of operation. This next sentence I love. I could spend all day thinking about it. The human imagine, imagination dissolves, diffuses, dissipates in order to recreate or where this process is rendered impossible, yet still at all events, it struggles to idealise and unify. It is essentially vital, and as I said to my boys the other day, what little word is in that word vital? To live. You know, this is the source of life, this stuff. This is not decorative. This is the source of life. Even as all objects, as objects, are essentially fixed and dead. Now, this all makes a lot more sense as a revolutionary piece of writing when we think that prior to this we have the tradition of the Enlightenment in which sits John Locke's tabula rasa. The tabula rasa being the idea that external um, stimuli are impressed upon the white slate that is my mind. And my mind simply is a receptacle, if you like, for the things which are impressed on it. What we have here, I think, is a completely revolutionary, different idea of what human perception is because it actually participates and, and therefore recreates what we see. 
probably just need a second to let that sit in because it is utterly different. It's a very high view of what we do when we perceive, when we perceive each other, when we perceive God and when we perceive the natural world. Um, and I mean to probably use that tripartite um, understanding of perception because I actually think that Coleridge is drawing on a very theological understanding of shalom. Shalom, by what I mean by that, is a reconnection or reconciliation with God or re of the covenant, of the patriarchal covenant, that we will be one with God when we are one with the natural world and one with each other in that um, essentially creative way, I suppose. So that's Coleridge being esoteric. It's so much better when you read the poetry. So... What I want to, I've, I've spoken about this idea of reconciliation and I think it's actually central to have in your mind when you read the, the poetry. When we read this, I want you to watch for um, instances of mirroring. All the way through the poem, there are these beautiful images of mirrors of one giving an image to the other. And for Coleridge, that has got to mean the external world and the human mind. It's got to mean that what I see, on the one hand, I'll just put this down, the things that I see and the way that I perceive it make creation together. We tend to think of creation as everything outside what I perceive. What Coleridge is saying is, no, 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 no. Creation is only whole when we bring the two together, when we have what are the perceived and the perceiver, as it were, together which is an extraordinary statement, an extraordinarily high view of what God has created us to be, I think. Um, and I think that that is a pretty attractive answer to John Locke's tabula rasa, in my humble opinion. So that's why I think that there's these beautiful images of mirroring all the way through the poem. Um, and I think it also speaks to this idea of reconciliation with God, with the natural world and with each other. Again, a type of mirroring. Um, okay, I might just stop because Coleridge is always going to say it better than I am. I don't know if... How many people here know Frost at Midnight? Okay, a few. Okay, so I've got some fans. That's good. You can help me out when I, like, struggle with my fatigue. I'm just going to read it. Um, okay, it's called Frost at Midnight. Um, FYI, the midnight thing is, of course, a portal, right? It, this is where the mysterious happens. As frost is. Frost is mysterious, <laughs> you know. It's not water. It's not ice. It's mysterious. I mean, it's not quite um, the snowflakes of Winnipeg. But if you've ever been to Winnipeg um, and you put out your hand and you have a look at the snowflakes on your hands, every single one by itself, a miracle, you know, and it just takes just the right, just the right moment to form into these kind of miraculous transient miracles. So all of that is, I think, in Coleridge's mind here. And as I said, midnight is the portal where the mysterious happens. Let's read. It starts off sulky. <laughs> the frost performs its secret ministry unhelped by any wind. The owlet's cry came loud and hark again loud as before. The inmates of my cottage, all at rest, have left me to that solitude which suits abstruse amusings save that at my side my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Tis calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. Sea, hill and wood, this populous village, sea and hill and wood, with all the numberless goings-on of life inaudible as dreams, 
The thin blue flame lies on my low-burnt fire and quivers not. Only that film, which fluttered on the grate, still flutters there, the sole unquiet thing. Methinks its motion in this hush of nature gives it dim sympathies with me who live, making it a companionable form whose puny flaps and freaks the idling spirit by its own moods interprets everywhere, echo or mirror, seeking of itself and makes a toy of thought. But oh, how oft, how oft at school with most believing mind, presageful have I gazed upon the bars to watch that fluttering stranger. And as oft with unclosed lids, already had I dreamt of my sweet birthplace and the old church tower whose bells the poor man's only music rang from morn to evening all the hot fair day, so sweetly that they stirred and haunted me with a wild pleasure, falling on mine ear, most like articulate sounds of things to come. So gazed I, till the soothing things I dreamt lulled me to sleep, and sleep prolonged my dreams, and so I brooded all the following morn, awed by the stern preceptor's face, mine eye fixed with mock study on my swimming book, save if the door half opened and I snatched a hasty glance, and still my heart leaped up, for still I hoped to see the stranger's face, townsman or aunt or sister more beloved, my playmate when we both were clothed alike. Dear babe, that sleepest cradled by my side, whose gentle breathings heard in this deep calm fill up the interspersed vacancies and momentary pauses of the thought. My babe so beautiful, it thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee and think that thou shalt learn far other lore and in far other scenes. For I was reared in that great city, pent mid cloisters dim and saw naught lovely but the sky and stars. But thou, my babe, shalt wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores beneath the crags of ancient mountain and beneath the clouds which image in their, bulk, in their bulk both lakes and shores and mountain crags, so shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. Great universal teacher, he shall mould thy spirit and by giving make it ask. Therefore all seasons shall be sweet to thee, whether the summer clothe the general earth with greenness or the red breasts sing, sit and sing betwixt the, tucks, the, sorry, the tufts of snow on the bare branch of mossy apple tree, while the night thatch smokes in the sun thaw, whether the eavedrops fall heard only in the trances of the blast, or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon." You almost want to applaud him, don't you? <laughs> Whether you understand it all or not, it's just like the most extraordinary, beautiful language, isn't it? Um, I'm not going to be able to talk about all the extraordinary things in that poem. I'd like to. Um, and I give it a red-hot go every year when I teach this poem. But for the sake of tonight, I think what I wanted to do was, was to talk about the, those mirroring images to give you a brief sketch of what I think the poem is literally about and then to zoom in and see if we can find these mirroring images because I think there's a, a couple of ways that they function. So the first part, that first stanza there, is Coleridge having a little bit of a sulk. He talks about abstruse amusings. Did you catch that? So he gives us this image of isolation, right? He's in a cottage. All, everybody else is sleeping happily. I mean, us insomniacs who've ever had a night like this will understand the kind of high dudgeon he's in. Um, he's even cross that his baby is sleeping next to him. Um, and the in and the out of 
of his infant's breath is bothering him, right? But it's not quite clear what's bothering him, just that something is bothering him. Um, and as, you know, that abstruse amusings, right? You, you sort of get that hissing sound with sibilance. It, it speaks to Coleridge's unquiet spirit. And then he gets to the end, the end of that stanza. And he, the, we get our first mirroring image, but I actually don't think it is quite a mirroring image. I don't know if you saw it. If you can see the last stanza there, uh, sorry, at the end of the first stanza, he says, he's talking about, you know that little flap that's on the edge, those from the mountains will know exactly what I mean. When the fire is at exactly the right moment, the heat from the fire will throw up a little piece of soot and it dances on the edge of the grate. Have you ever seen that? So the folklore surrounding that was that if you ever saw that on the grate, that that meant that some stranger would visit you um, and it would be a visit that you would enjoy. And so that's when he talks about the stranger, he first identifies with that little flap and thinks, that, that's totally what I'm like. I'm that lonely, poor sod on the end of the grate. That's what I'm like. And so we get our first attempt at mirroring, at moving outside of himself. And he says here, um, only that film which fluttered on the grate still flutters there, the sole unquiet thing, the unquiet of the, the <coughs> soot mirroring the unquiet of his soul, right? And then he says, it gives dim sympathies with me who live, making it a companionable form. That's not mirroring. That's just I'm um, projecting myself onto this poor little piece of soot. <coughs> but then he says this really interesting thing here, whose puny flaps and freaks, note the alliteration, the idling spirit by its own mood interprets everywhere echo or mirror seeking of itself and makes a toy of thought. What he's talking about there, I actually think, is not a reciprocal mirroring. What he's talking about there is the fact that he's actually aware that I'm taking in the external stimuli outside of myself and I'm sucking it in to give proof of the fact that I am alone. If that makes any sense. This is solipsism, okay, by its own mood interprets. I feel sour, so therefore everything around me is sour. That's not really human perception. That's not creation. That's projection. So that's what's happening in the first stanza. And then he goes into a little bit of a sulky move into his childhood. That's what's happening in the second stanza. He moves into a memory of himself as a child. Um, and we get some sense about why he's sulky here, right? He's, he was at, I think, I have heard it said by my excellent professor, Will Christie, that basically Coleridge was a bit of a sad sack because he, um, I think, I can't remember, he lost his mother or father at a very early age, was sent off to boarding school basically to Christ College and never basic, he never recovered. So he gives us a little bit, one of those images here. Um, he says, but oft, how oft at school with most believing mind presageful have I gazed upon the bars. The bars there are intentionally images of incarceration. And he's drawing there on Rousseau, who said, um, and Blake, who called it the mind-forged manacles, and Rousseau, who said, oh, I'm going to miss it. Um, man is free, but everywhere he is in chains. <laughs> the idea being that we walk around with no, with no obvious manacles on, but I can't think outside of myself. My mind has been colonised. And this became an interesting romantic thought. What happens if you actually free the mind? And this is Coleridge's question. My mind has been colonised by certain habits of thought that have been inherited from the Enlightenment, right? 
presageful have I gazed upon the bars to watch that fluttering stranger. And the stranger is the link, right? Because when he was a kid, he also used to watch the stranger on the grate and think, by God, would someone from my hometown visit me? And so he starts thinking about his sister whom he loved. And that's what's going on here. I think of my old birthplace and the old church tower. So the young Coleridge is thinking back to when he, when he was at home with his family, right? So it's a, this double movement backwards into his childhood. Um, and then we get another sort of pseudo mirroring image. Um, if you go with me, he says, um, and it's actually quite telling. And so I brooded all the following morn, awed by the stern preceptor's face, which is the teacher, right? And you can imagine the kind of teacher he's talking about. Awed by the stern preceptor's face, mine eye fixed with mock study on my swimming book. Right, So the swimming book and the face are mirroring each other. But it's not, once again, this is not a reciprocal mirroring. The information is going all one way. All one way. Captured in that word swimming, I think. doesn't mean anything to him. What he's looking for is the actual, actual reciprocity of his sister. Save if the door half opened and I snatched a hasty glance and still my heart leaped up for still I hoped to see the stranger's face townsman or aunt or sister more beloved, my playmate when we both were clothed alike. And now comes the best part of the poem. The best part of the poem. He says, Dear babe, that sleepest cradled by my side, and the attentive among us will see what's happened. What's happened? It's extraordinary. <laughs> First of all, the first stanza, I'm sulky sitting by the fire and everybody else is asleep. <laughs> and then I'm going to go into my memory and then I'm going to go from my memory into my memory's memory and I'm going to have a big fat sulk. I'm caricaturing. And then in the third stanza, he says, Dear babe, that sleepest cradled by my side, whose gentle breathings heard in this deep calm filled up the interspersed vacancies and momentary pauses of the thought. My babe so beautiful. It thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee and think that thou shalt learn far other lore and in far other scenes. What's, what's he doing? The register just totally shifted. It totally shifted. All of a sudden, we move into direct address. This is an outward movement of what my beloved teacher, Will Christie, would call self-effacing love. This is the first movement of reciprocity. This is the first movement out of the self. And this is beautiful moment, and I'm just going to touch on it because it's exquisite. And he talks about this, this interspersed vacancies, right? The interspersed vacancies and the gentle breathings is the breathing of an infant. You've all heard it, right? Which, by the way, is captured in the iambic pentameter of the poem. I kid you not. Long, short, long, short, long, short, long, short. It's the breath, right? In, out, in, out, in, out. It's magnificent, which of course speaks to reciprocity, right? In, out, in, out, in, out, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. It's incredible. The other cool thing that happens at this moment, if you're paying attention, which I force my boys to do, <laughs> is the personal pronouns totally shift. The personal pronouns, as my teacher said, say it all. In the first and second stanza, it's all I, 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 I. And in the third and the fourth stanza, all we pretty much see is thee. 
And so the poem shifts over from I to thee, right? And then you get this lovely mirroring image, right? We have the stern preceptor in the third stanza, right? Remember the stern preceptor in the swimming book? Now listen. It thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee and think that thou shalt learn far other lore to what I did and in far other scenes. For I was reared in the great city, pent mid cloisters dim, and saw naught lovely but the sky and stars. He could only see out through the window, right? Um, but thou, my babe, shalt wander like a breeze by lakes and shores. This is the best bit of the poem here. Beneath the crags of ancient mountain and beneath the clouds which image in their, bo their bulk both lakes and shores and mountain crags. Stop there. Did you find it? Did you see it? Did you see the image? It's pretty little. Where is it? Here? Here. Did you see the image? Do you know what he's talking about? Reflection. Reflection, exactly. In those extraordinary moments, the first time I saw it like really powerfully was actually in Vancouver in the, um, the coastal ranges when I went on a walk. And you almost can't see. You could squint and you couldn't tell the difference between the actual thing and its reflection. That's what he's talking about there, right? And then he says, So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language as opposed to the stern preceptor, right? This is an eternal language we're learning, which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. And he's there drawing on scripture. You can all hear it, right? Great universal teacher, as opposed to the stern preceptor. He shall mould thy spirit and by giving make it ask. Can you hear the reciprocity there? As opposed to the stern preceptor who wanted, you know, this tabula rasa business. What Coleridge is introducing is this idea of reciprocity. And then he goes into full biblical mode. Therefore, can you hear the declarative language? Therefore, he sounds like the prophet Moses and he's meant to. All seasons shall be sweet to thee, he declares, whether the summer clothe the general earth with greenness or the red breast sit and sing betwixt the tufts of snow on the bare branch of the mossy apple tree. Listen to the alliteration here. It is just magnificent. Well, the, do you know what he's talking about when the, the, the steam rises through the snow? Have you ever heard that? When, like in, in, in um, spring and the snow's melting, which I've heard in Winnipeg, you can almost hear the right? And he captures that here in the alliteration. While the nigh thatch smokes in the sun thaw. Did you hear it? That th th. Whether the eve drops fall, heard only in the trances of the blast, or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. One more image of reciprocity, which is just mind-blowing, captured in that last paragraph. What he's talking about there, he draws together the seasons. If you've not noticed that the, re the heat and cold, the mossy apple tree, betwixt the tufts of snow, all of the seasons come together in this moment. And then he gives us this last image. Um, if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. The moon itself, of course is a reflection of the sun. And so you have this sort of dancing reciprocal image where no particular part of creation holds authorship except God himself, but each throws light to the other. 
each throws light to the other. Anyway, that's just inside the poem. Um, pretty good, hey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I haven't even, I haven't even like stopped on half the incredible things in that poem. But one of the cool things about this poem is its structure, which I tried to allude to. Um, Wordsworth said in one of his poems, I can't remember. He said, "The father, the, the child is the child is father to the man." That's what he said. The child is father to the man. There he's talking about um, a romantic conception of the child. The child is the um, as, as one who responds hasn't been, I suppose, screwed over by a stern preceptor, so therefore is able to respond to creation as we're meant to respond to creation, a full heart with a sense, uh, with an understanding, I suppose, of how incredible our perceptions are. But I think for Coleridge, this is more precise. If you look at the structure of the poem, it's actually what I would call a chiasmus. You can jump in any time, Ron. A chiasmus is a structure... Have I got a pen? So normally in Genesis, a chiasmus is structured like that, right? And a chiasmus puts, this is the beginning of the story, this is the end of the story, right? And then the second story, the second last, and so on and so on and so on. And the thing with a chiasmus is that it's a Jewish way of reading a story. And the point is, for a Jewish way, of, and particularly and I think this is actually really important, it's prevalent in Genesis. There's lots of them in Genesis. And the whole point of a chiasmus is that this is where the meaning is. It's in the middle. That's the secret. Western eyes, I suppose, go right to the end. We're looking for the punchline right at the end. The punchline in Coleridge's poem is not at the end. The punchline is in the middle. Um, and the middle, of course, is that turn, the direct address, dear babe, when he turns outward. And so the poem is actually structured itself like a mirror. If you look at it very carefully, it starts with the father, then he goes to his child self, then he moves to his child Hartley, and then he moves to the future Hartley, the man. So it goes from the man to the child to the child to the man. Not only that, not only that, it moves from the present to the past to the future and draws all time to this one moment. It's pretty extraordinary in what it's suggesting about what human perception can do. So that's that bit. Then there's this other way of thinking about it, which is to say what's actually happening here in this moment. And I think Coleridge was cognizant of this, which is to say that if we have creation out here and we look out at all of this beautiful stuff out here and our our brains and our synapses and so on and so forth are responding to it in exactly the way that Coleridge is suggesting, 100%, that's what's happening in the poem. But here's the other trippy thing. We are responding, responding in exactly the same way to Coleridge's creation, who is a finite representation of the, fi- of the infinite God. So we have in front of us a human creation, right, when Coleridge described that image, the image, the clouds which image in their bulk and so on and so forth. Our minds are responding in reciprocity with what we have seen. And so we meet 
over 200 years, we literally collapsed time in that moment. And so the poet, who rightfully uses the same tool as God did in Genesis, which is to say his words, which is why Coleridge had this burning sense of the importance of words because they came straight from Genesis. It's the one thing that God has given us, I suppose. Um, So we've got mirroring in the poem, mirroring of the poem, and the poem itself mirrors and creates this sort of reciprocal relationship with the people that read it. Um, And if the poem inside it collapses time, the poem itself also collapses time in our reading of it. So I think I'm going to stop there because I could just go on forever and ever. Um, but Dad, Dad mentioned very briefly um, Coleridge's place in the Romantic era. And I know many Christians know Wilberforce probably better than they do Coleridge or Wordsworth. But it's true that the, the Romantic period, say from about 1790 to 1832, it begins with the French Revolution and it ends with the Great Reform Act in 1832 which gave the vote to, um, I think by then we had 18% of men. um, It widened the vote, basically, to mean that poorer men could vote. It's the beginning of a more egalitarian future or vision for England and for anybody that took on that system of government. For the Romantic period, they were universally interested in reconciliation (coughs) and freedom. And so I think that Coleridge, to play his part here, is talking about a kind of freedom in, in getting out away from those bars, I suppose, and understanding, I suppose, what it is that our human perception can do, what kind of transcendence, what kind of freedom that gives us to know what we are created to be. I think I'll stop there and hand over to Ron. Well... Um, let's just take a break. Um... <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not sure who was here the last time I went through this, but this is going to be the abridged version, so it's going to be very quick. Um, and I feel I was worried that, you know, Quantum theory might be difficult, but after listening to Sarah, I think you'll find it a real breeze. <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> I think Coleridge is far more profound than quantum theory. But um, Anyway, let's get started on it. I put that heading up to be particularly provocative, obviously. It's a very provocative heading, but um, there's a problem with modern physics, and you'll notice that there's two striking words for me in that heading. One is interpretation, the other one is measurement, both very human, human actions. And Sarah was obviously stressing the importance of the human mind. And the human mind has been a battleground for the last 400 years since the Enlightenment. Um, Descartes started it all. He was the problem. <laughs> he, uh, he, he really, what he did was... Um, responded to the growth. Galileo was a contemporary of his. The growth of scientific method was just starting. And the smart people of that time could see already that we were heading for a materialist worldview. And that was the interpretation of the world that was coming. 
Well, quantum theory has a totally different interpretation of the world, which I hope to be able to show you by the end. So Descartes, though, he defended the mind at that point and said the mind actually is something different. It's a completely different substance to the, to the body and the world. And that view has been under attack ever since. Of course, at the present day, um, we're right down the bottom there at materialism. Matter is king. Matter is everything. The human mind is considered to be matter these days. We're just chemical reactions. All the wonderful emotions, imagery, perception that Sarah was speaking about in Coleridge is nothing but a very fortunate evolutionary chemical combination and soup that we've arrived at. Um, and the, the classic dichotomy is the ghost and the machine. Is there a ghost still left in the machine? Uh, don't try and absorb all of that, but it's, it's quite a nice little table I just whipped up. <laughs> you can see here, Descartes formed the mind-body dualist problem. From there, it went two ways. One went to idealism, where some philosophers thought it was all mind. We're living in the matrix. There's no such thing as external reality. The other branch was Locke, who thought it was all, all matter. Because this is a problem. How do you, if these are two different substances, how can the world possibly make, be made up of two different substances? The great human endeavour is to explain everything in terms of one. So it's either got to be either mind or either body. To have the two together leaves a very messy philosophy. Uh, Kant, I think, resolved them nicely, but um, he's been largely left behind in the, in the drive towards positivism and ultimately scientism, which is where we're left at um, at the beginning of the 21st century. It's really about the, the debate of what is real, what actually exists. And that's what quantum theory blows wide open. So how do I explain quantum theory to you? Um, I've got a reading list at the end, which I'll give you, but <laughs> I'm going to try and do it all in a very quick run-through. In classical physics, which is what Newton basically perfected, um, uncertainty is epistemological. It's not ontological. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with what reality is. It's just about our knowledge of reality. Epistemology is the pursuit of knowledge. This is the pursuit of being, what's actually there. The underlying assumption of classical physics is we can get to know what's actually there if we acquire enough knowledge about it and we have the tools to acquire that knowledge. So the materialist interpretation of classical Newtonian physics is very well demonstrated by the coin toss. Um, once it leaves the finger, we predict the outcome of heads or tails by statistics. And because there's only two possible outcomes, it's 50-50. Right, simple high school mathematics. But there's the underlying assumption that that is not really 
unknown territory. It's just that we haven't really got all the data. We don't understand exactly how fast the finger flicked, how much wind there was buffeting the coin on the way. If we could put all that into a giant computer, we would understand actually what the result would be for every single coin toss that we've ever done. That is classical uncertainty, and it's got nothing to do with quantum uncertainty and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So you got that concept? Um, so if we imagine an imaginary line here where certainty, it's on my finger. I can see the head. I'm going to flick above here. It becomes uncertain until it lands back down on my hand. This is the uncertain period, but this uncertain period is classical in nature. It's just purely a lack of data. Anyway, from there we built, the, from that confidence that, we, that knowledge would eventually resolve all issues, we built our atomic theories. We built our periodic tables. And these days we're, we're down at quarks. However, this pursuit of ever greater reductionism fails to come to terms with the measurement problem in quantum theory. Now, Locke, these are some of Locke's contemporaries, Thomas Hobbes, philosopher, an English philosopher, contemporary of Galileo and Locke, he understood immediately the, the profound effect of the Galilean dynamics. This is, in, this is around the 1600s he came up with this statement, thus mind will be nothing but the motions of certain parts of an organic body. I mean, our current concept of mind is no more sophisticated than that, is it? That is the, the orthodox view of mind, the chemical view of mind. Um, John Donne, just to encroach on Sarah's territory momentarily, <laughs> he penned this um, poem in response to some of these, you know, Galileo, Newton, all these sort of things. A new philosophy calls all in doubt. The element of fire is quite put out. He's referring to Greek uh, cosmology there. Earth, air, wind and fire, that's all gone. The sun is lost and the earth and no man's wit, in other words Copernicus, can well direct him where to look for it. And freely men confess that this world's spent when in the planets and the firmament they seek so many new then see that this is crumbled out again to his atomies. Look at the dates. Is it, any, is it any different to our current philosophy? Tis all pieces, all coherence gone, all just supply and relation. So we think we're very sophisticated in the 21st century, but actually we're 400. There's nothing really changed in 400 years. And Alexander Pope... I mean, Newton was, you know, lauded spectacularly in his time, with good reason, of course. He was a genius. But uh, Alexander Pope penned this, uh, penned this little ditty. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Um, so, certainty. There was the, the genuine, the interpretation of... Measurement was it will drive us to certainty. 
that we will one day understand all things, understand the human mind even. And Gilbert Ryle coined it in the, uh, around the turn of, well, you know, early in the 20, 20, uh, 20th century. There is a doctrine about the nature and place of the mind, which is prevalent among theorists, to which most philosophers, psychologists and religious teachers subscribe with minor reservations. Although they admit certain theoretical difficulties in it, the doctrine states that every human being has both a body and a mind. Descartes. Because that's where, you, that's where we've retreated to. If, you're, if you believe in God, you don't want to concede all the ground to materialism. You know, we, 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 I think as 21st century Christians, we've conceded far too much ground in the sense that we, we believe mind is already pretty much chemicals, but there's just a little bit of something there left, some soul, whatever that is, some little bit of spirit, whatever that is. Um, well, Gilbert Ryle was a product of his age. Such an in outline is the official theory. I shall often speak of it with deliberate abusiveness as the dogma of the ghost in the machine. I, I hope to prove that it is entirely false and false not in detail but in principle. And I think we can all agree that somebody like Richard Dawkins is a perfect embodiment of this, that, that spirit. That's, that's basically uh, what Richard Dawkins and all of Western society would pretty much agree with. There's another poet. I don't know much of you know this guy. I don't, he's, I don't think he was very famous, but he had another little ditty. It did not last the devil howling ho. Let <laughs> Einstein be restore the status quo. Now, in 1905, Einstein he published two papers. One was on the, general, uh, the special theory of relativity, but that's not what he got the Nobel Prize for. He published another paper, which was on the photoelectric effect, which basically postulated that light was made up of not waves but particles, because when you shined a light on a piece of metal, it actually knocked electrons out of the piece of metal. So he concluded that light actually appears in quanta, little packets that have the ability to, to knock other little packets, which are electrons, they're able to bump them around, and hence quantum theory is born. He had his, he had his nose in everything, Einstein, in the, 21st century, in the 20th century physics department. Um, look, there were problems right from the beginning with the atomic theory. Just the simple fact, you know, how can a little tiny electron buzzing around a nucleus, which is mostly empty space, give rise to this feeling of solidity that we experience. You know, why? How can a an electron buzzing around a nucleus give, give rise to this substantial table? It doesn't make sense. And you know, a nice little fact: if we compress all the void out of human a human being, so that there is only protons, neutrons, and electrons in physical contact, the resulting object would only be visible under a microscope. So already this feeling of substantiality 
and certainty was le the, the demise of that um, interpretation was already starting contained within the theory itself. Now, if you understand the next two slides, you will understand quantum theory. Because the next thing that people, once they decided that light was made up of particles, the next thing was they thought, well, maybe particles are made up of waves. Maybe there's no such thing as a substantial particle, it's just a wave, or maybe there's no such thing as a substantial wave, it's a particle. And this is, of course, at the heart of quantum theory. Imagine you're a golfer. <laughs> this one is particularly for Tony. <laughs> if I'm a golfer standing here, hitting golf balls at a screen with two slits in it, who's aware... <laughs> Who knows about, who's familiar with quantum theory here? Okay. This is quantum theory made simple. <laughs> you would expect most of them would hit, hit the board around here and just land flat. A small portion would pass through in a direct line from the point of impact onto a screen, let's say there's a, some sort of screen that can capture those golf balls behind. And they would form two distinct patches there because a golf ball, once it goes through here, it can't go like this and like this and like this, right? Mm -hmm. It obeys Newtonian classical physics. It can only just do that. Certainty. We're certain about where it's going to end up. It's either there or there. If I close this, it'll just end up there. If I close this, it'll just end up there. If I leave both open, It'll end up there or there. Classical. That's Newtonian. We all understand that. The next slide is the problem. When they started doing that experiment, and it's very easy to do with electrons, passing them through two slits, firing them just like golf balls, there weren't two little patches, as you would expect from a classical object or a Newtonian object or a real object, you've got diffraction patterns, which means that is classical wave behaviour. That means there's interference going on here. There's, once, the, once the electron gets through here, it's going shoo over here, or shoo down here, or shoo over here. Yeah, it's going, it's starting to go crazy. This was the world that they encountered once they started doing experiments with the very small, rather than tables. Everybody following me so far? Now, the big problem with quantum theory is, there's a few big quantums with problems with quantum <laughs> theory. We know what the electron is here when we create it and release it. It's a particle. We have no idea what it's doing in here. And I'll get deeper into that in a minute. And then we observe it on this screen at the back and it becomes a particle again. The electron lives in two different worlds, in two different states. It's like two separate objects with completely different characteristics. When we've got hold of it and are observing it, it acts like a particle. 
Once we release it into the unknown, it starts behaving like a wave, a wave we know nothing about, except through the mathematical formulas of the Schrodinger equation. And then we, we capture it again on this screen here. So that's what it looks like when you do that experiment in reality. Imagine this is a TV screen, like Electron, an old TV, you know, the old TV screens, they were cathode ray tubes, they were just basically electron screens, screens to capture electrons. You start seeing randomised, if you start putting them through one at a time, it just looks totally random, but after a while this pattern, this diffusion pattern forms, which, which indicates it's, it's demonstrating wave-like behaviour between the time you release it and the time you measure it. How can that be if the electron is supposed to be a solid particle? Um, that doesn't really work anymore. So now they start, they talk about the electron is a cloud, a wave around an atom. And there was lots of speculation about what an electron could possibly be. And this is the problem. This is an epistemological problem. If we had enough data, we, could, we actually could know at any moment what this coin is doing. But this is an ontological problem. We have no data except here and here. There's no way, we have no theory, no scientific analysis that allows us to understand what's happening in here or to um, predict what goes on in here. All we can do is predict what happens at measuring devices. And this is the, big, this is the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. Basically, only the world that is measured is real as far as quantum theory is concerned. The rest is some unknown quantum fairyland. That's all we know about an electron when we're not measuring it. Don't worry about what that actually says. <laughs> I have no idea what that says. But what it means is, all we have is a mathematical theory that predicts measurement. If we're not looking at the particle, it's not a particle. This is the very difficult concept to understand in quantum theory. Our best theory of reality states that only measured objects are real. The rest of the time, they exist in unknown quantum space, whatever that might be. We make the world by measuring it. So now I'm going to read through a few quotes and we'll talk about them. This should give you an idea about what is the problem behind the me measurement and why it needs interpreting. In the world of the very small, where particle and wave aspects of reality are equally significant, 
things do not behave in any way that we can understand from our experience of the everyday world. It isn't just that Bohr's atom, that's that old model, with its electron orbits is a false picture. All pictures are false. And there is no physical analogy we can make to understand what it goes on inside atoms. Atoms behave like atoms, nothing else. Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington, who was one of the great scientists of the early 20th century, summed up the situation brilliantly in his book, The Nature of the Physical World. No familiar concepts can be woven around the electron, he said, and our best description of the atom boils down to something to something unknown is doing we don't know what. <laughs> he notes that this does not sound a particularly illuminating theory. <laughs> I have read something like it elsewhere, the slithy toes did gyre and gimbal in the lobby. As Ed Eddington pointed out more than 50 years ago, all the fundamentals of physics could be translated into Jabberwocky. <laughs> There would be no loss of meaning and conceivably a great benefit if we broke the instinctive association in our minds of atoms with hard spheres and electrons with tiny particles. This is a different interpretation of reality, you see. The quantum interpretation is anti-Newtonian. But of course we, in the, we are all stuck in the Newtonian interpretation. We haven't caught up yet with what these guys were talking about, uh, well, nearly 80 years ago now. This is Paul Davies. I'm sure many of you have heard of Paul Davies. Descartes founded the image of the human mind as a sort of nebulous substance that exists independently of the body. Much later in the 1930s, Gilbert Ryle derided this dualism. In a pithy reference, to the mind part as the ghost in the machine. Ryle articulated his criticism during the triumphal phase of materialism and mechanism. The machine he referred to was the human body and the human brain, themselves just parts of the larger cosmic machine. But, he, but already when he coined that pithy expression, the new physics was at work undermining the worldview on which Ryle's philosophy was based. Today on the brink of the 21st century we see we can see Ryle was right to dismiss the notion of the ghost in the machine. Not because there is no ghost, but because there is no machine. <laughs> these are serious scientists making these observations. Again, Paul Davies. Then came our quantum theory, which totally transformed our image of matter. The old assumption that the microscopic world of atoms was simply a scaled-down version of the everyday world had to be abandoned. Newton's deterministic machine was replaced by a shadowy and paradoxical conjunction of waves and particles, governed by the laws of chance rather than the rigid rules of causality. An extension of the quantum theory goes beyond even this. It paints a picture in which solid matter dissolves away, to be replaced by weird excitations and vibrations of invisible field energy. Quantum physics undermines materialism because it reveals that matter has far less substance than we might believe. Okay, some problems. With, what, what, what are some of the problems with measurement when we come to quantum theory? There is nothing physical or real until we choose to make a measurement. It is just mathematical quantum stuff. So what does that mean? Is that my time enough? <laughs>
it means it means something like this we are we are strange bodies we ourselves we we're classical objects we're solid we seem to have reality we seem to interact with other real objects like this table or everyone else in this room quantum stuff is nothing like that it's just mathematical formalism as far as we can see it pops up once and we only can but we can only experience solidity we can't experience the quantum world so this raises the big question what's primary for a start it raises the question what's primary are we primary or is the quantum world primary um and the problem seems to be that reality only happens when something is measuring it so there's only one logical candidate to measure reality and that's human consciousness because everything else is made up of just atoms so tables are tables can't measure anything a table can't create an experiment and say let's check to see what the electrons doing today only human beings can is it a wave or is it a particle the next crazy thing about quantum you just have to right, go with me on this we create the particles only at the point we choose to observe them so it's actually our measurement that creates when we're conducting an experiment in quantum theory it's only the way we set up the measuring device and at the point of measurement that we can actually see anything real and we also determine the characteristics of those particles for example the had the large hadron collider in switzerland was designed specifically to find the higgs boson which is the the matter the god particle the matter particle you may have encountered that in reading the local newspaper a year or two ago when it was big news well i had to the higgs boson what is the higgs boson it was it was nothing it was an unreal substance until we set up a particular measuring device that made it pop into reality we had to devise a measuring device that created a higgs boson another problem is the quantum world is not deterministic a coin toss is deterministic in the sense that if we had the data we could determine what the outcome would be it is, but an electron is is ontologically uncertain and statistical we can't tell where on that diffusion pattern the electron's going to end up we can tell we have a statistical prediction for where it's going to end up but we we can't ever know actually where it's there's there's no data available it's going to pop up randomly out of the quantum soup whatever that might be in a place that we can never predict anyway i won't go through all of them because i'm sure you're already spinning on it just um I'll just take a few more quotes and hopefully that'll give you a bit more of an understanding of the weirdness of quantum theory a curious feature of the copenhagen interpretation is that it considers both the atom and the measuring device to be incomprehensible 
We cannot understand the quantum world because its nature is utterly alien to human thought. We cannot explain the classical world, ourselves in other words, because quantum theory, the physicist's only basis for explaining anything today, simply takes the existence of the classical world for granted. In Fury's words, the classical world is logically prior to the quantum theory and is not expected to find an explanation in it. In other words, we can't get from atoms anymore to us. There is no linkage there except the Schrodinger equations, the equations that Schrodinger, the mathematical equations that Schrodinger developed. Quantum theory predicts how a classical measuring instrument will respond to a quantum system, but the theory itself does not contain such measuring devices, nothing in there but proxy waves. Fortunately, the practice, fortunately for the practice of physics, each of us is born into a world already inhabited by these inexplicable measuring devices. Your eye is one example. In other words, the old physics attempted to explain macroscopic objects in terms of the atoms which make them up. That's Newtonian physics. The new physics explains atoms in terms of macroscopic objects. In this inverted Copenhagen scheme, there is a sense in which atoms are made of measuring instruments and not the other way around. One of the main facts of life is that we radically change whatever we observe. Legendary King Midas never knew the feel of silk or a human hand after everything he touched turned to gold. Humans are stuck in a familiar Midas-like predicament. We can't directly experience the true texture of reality because everything we touch turns to matter. <coughs> this is a quote from Einstein. I think that a particle must have a separate reality. Einstein, by the way, although he was the founder of quantum theory through his 1905 paper, he spent the rest of his life disagreeing with it because he couldn't believe that the universe was that weird. And that's where he coined his term, God does not play dice with the universe. I don't know if you've heard that expression of his, but it's all in relation to quantum theory. He spent far more time trying to refute quantum theory than he did developing the theory of relativity. But in the end, he conceded defeat. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't beat it. I think that a particle must have a separate reality independent of the measurements. That is, an electron has spin, location, and so forth, even when it is not being measured. I like to think that the moon is there even if I'm not looking at it. And David Merrin, who is a, is a scientist, we now know that the moon is demonstrably not there when nobody looks. I mean, these, these are genuine interpretations by top scientists of what quantum theory means. The measurement problem means that the old materialist worldview is dead, but we haven't caught up with it yet. It seems that, there's, that our consciousness seems to be instrumental in creating reality. Because it's something different. Descartes is resurrected and standing strong. We need mind now to explain quantum theory. We, we need mind to explain what a measuring device is. We don't have any concept of what a measuring device is unless we can introduce mind back into the equation because everything else is just these atoms and molecules and protons and neutrons and electrons. And they're no use to us anymore because they're not real until somebody's there to observe them. I like 
this quote, the world is one substance, as satisfying as, as this discovery may be to philosophers, it is profoundly disturbing to physicists, as long as they do not understand the nature of that substance. For if quantum stuff is all there is, and you don't understand quantum stuff, your ignorance is complete. Um, last slide. We have reached a very interesting position. Ever since the beginning of modern science, four or five hundred years ago, scientific thought seems to have moved man and consciousness further from the centre of things. More and more of the universe has become explicable in me mechanical objective terms, and even human beings are becoming understood scientifically by, bio by biologists and behavioural scientists. Now we find that physics, previously considered the most objective of all sciences, is reinventing the need for the human soul and putting it right at the centre of our understanding of the universe. Alternatively, others have suggested that the world is observed not only by ourselves, but by another eternal conscious being, whom we might as well call God. The idea that God has a role in ensuring the continual existence of objects that are not being observed by human beings is actually quite an old one and led to the following 19th century limerick. There once was a man who said God must think it exceedingly odd if he finds that this tree continues to be when there's no one about in the quad. Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad and that's why the tree will continue to be since observed by yours faithfully, God. <laughs> that's a good reading list if you want to enjoy it. There you go, that's quantum theory in 34 minutes. I think that's a very good question, but I think the problem is that the scientific method, the scientific method is what also discovered quantum theory. The problem is the interpretation of the scientific method. The general scientific community doesn't want to let the quantum facts speak for themselves. They're still locked in this belief that it's an epistemological problem. 
not an ontological problem. That was Einstein's problem. He was stuck in the, he was stuck in this belief that there's not something fundamentally mysterious and weird about the universe. We as human beings think we'll conquer it, and that there's ultimately nothing, no barrier to the ingenuity of the human mind, and and science and the scientific method represents that worldview. The quantum interpretation of reality, as you can see, lots of famous scientists now disagree with that. However, it's very early, I think. We're back in, we're back in the Locke, Hume era of quantum theory, and the revolution hasn't filtered through to society yet. The interpretation isn't out there. Um, but I don't think there's anything fundamentally flawed with the scientific method. I think what quantum theory shows is the scientific method, there's an ontological problem which the scientific method has revealed. Let's let it speak for itself. Let's not assume that the scientific method is all-conquering. 